Romans chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds. To those who by perseverance and doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life, but to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath and indignation, there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good to the Jew first and also to the Greek for there is no partiality with God for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law for it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God but the doers of the law will be justified for when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law these not having the law are a law to themselves and that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience, bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or defending them on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. And Father, we do thank you for this passage. Lord, we ask that your spirit would illuminate the meaning of this text. Lord, give us clarity, Lord, to know what it's saying and what Paul uh, is trying to communicate through your spirit. Father, we pray that you would show us um, application to our own lives and that ultimately, Lord, that we would draw closer to you through the studying of your word. We love you, Father. We pray this in Christ's good name. Amen. So as a way, we had a week off in a way to kind of to review the bigger picture. As we go through Romans, it's going to be important to, to as we get kind of into the, the, the weeds of the text, we have to back up and to see how does it fit. So going back to Romans chapter 1, uh, the very first verse, the first seven verses are essentially Paul's sort of uh, the, the address. I view it sort of like it, today's standard. If we have an envelope, we put the who it's going to and where it came from. And essentially the first seven verses can be summarized with Paul uh, to all who are beloved of God in Rome. There's a big parenthetical statement between verses 2 and 6 where Paul expands upon the gospel. But Paul identifies himself uh, writing to these believers who are in Rome. We know that he writes from Corinth, which is modern-day Greece. Uh, He's never met these believers in Rome. Paul desires to go to Rome or to to go to Rome uh, to raise support, to meet them, and then to go on to Spain, which verses 8 through uh, 15 or 17 sort of 
give his heart of where he's going, how he longs to see them. He desires to be to not only to encourage them, but to be encouraged by them, that they would get to know one another, that he would seek a gift from them. And that ultimately his aim, that, that he wants to teach them the gospel, the, to share the good news of Christ, that the gospel is that Jesus died according to the scriptures for our sins, that he was buried and that he rose again according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to many people. And through his life, death, burial, resurrection, our faith in him, we're transformed. We are uh, created anew. We are born again. We are moved from death in Adam to life in Christ. And because of this great power, Paul is not ashamed of the gospel. In verses 16 through 17, he says he is not ashamed of it, for it's the power or the dynamic of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Uh, Verses 18 through 32 is what we looked at two weeks ago or the last time we, we studied Romans. And this is the sort of uh, the other side of the coin. If God is holy, uh, when we look at the cross, we see God's righteousness in Christ, that he lived the perfect life going uh, to the cross as a perfect offering for us. On the other side, we see the wrath of God fully revealed and placed upon Christ, bearing the punishment for our sins. And in verses 18 through 32, Paul begins to expose the sin of the Gentiles, of the barbarians, those that were not educated in the Roman system, that were not uh, necessarily of the Jewish faith. They, they were apart from God. And as he's writing up to this point, everything was about they, 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 not related to the, the recipients of the letter. But then we get to the chapter or chapter two, verse one, and there is a shift. Paul, as he's writing chapter one, I think he almost can hear the recipients begin to give hearty amens. I'm with you, brother. Yes. Uh, Verse 32, as Paul lists all of these sins from homosexuality to being disobedient to parents, to pride, to gossips. He says in verse 32, all of these things are worthy of death. And this is called a a diatribe uh, as we end end of chapter two. Uh, Paul, as he's writing, as he writes worthy of death, they who they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice him. He sees his Jewish righteousness, his Jewish uh, pride and arrogance from his old life. He can hear them saying, amen, they deserve death. And in chapter two, he shifts and he says, therefore, you, oh, you, he shifts the the direction of his conversation from they, they, they to suddenly you. He says, before you start getting on your high horse, I have a few things to say to you. He says, but you have no excuse. Who's the you? Well, going back to Romans chapter one, verse seven, he's writing to all who are beloved of God in Rome. The majority of people believe that chapter two, the focus It is aimed towards the Jewish person, believer or non-believer. And they get this because when we get to verse 17 next week, he writes, but if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God. So he definitely addresses it. 
So it very well could be that this first section, he, he has the Jewish believer in mind. It, in a certain respect, as I'm studying this, uh, I believe that he has all believers, Jew, Gentile, uh, those that identify with religion, those that identify with being morally upstanding people, uh, the moralist, whether or not they have God. Those that would agree with Paul in chapter 1, verse 32, as he lists all of this sinful nature, as he says, these things are worthy of death, and they're saying, amen, it's true, it's wrong. They're not good people like me. Paul turns his attention, which is probably a lot of us. If you're in church on a Sunday morning, you know, I drove in here today. It's a beautiful day out there. We live in one of the nicest places in the world. It's it, it's got to be close to 80 perfect sunshine and i and i woke up really early today and and when i came in i had a bunch of spare time so i'm like oh, i'll go to the post office i'll just kind of take my time getting to church and uh but i saw all of these cars out and and it started dawning on me like man they uh they're not going to church they're enjoying this beautiful day which makes a lot of sense to me And then it started striking me for those of us that are in church on this sunny, beautiful day, this this beautiful part of the world. I think it's safe to assume that we're the religious ones, that we would sort of give up that beautiful day to be here in a a warmer, enclosed little box to, to listen to me talk about the Bible. So there's sort of some warning to us. Because a lot of us, we would get into this chapter, although two weeks ago, you guys all stood up and admitted that you're a bunch of horrible sinners, you know. <laughs> although Don cut it off the tape, so it's, my evidence is gone, but I bet he still has it somewhere in there. <laughs> you guys all admitted your guilt, so we got a leg up there. But so he points to them and he says, therefore, you have no excuse. Every one of you who passes judgment... For in that which you judge one another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And so he starts, this word judge is going to come up. I think it's, I didn't really count it, but in the first section of our verses today, this word judge or judged happens a number of times. And so the Bible speaks about judging in two different ways. Most of us, if I asked you, is judging good or bad? Most of us would probably say bad, right? But did all of you just make a judgment in that <laughs> in, giving your, in giving your response? Judging is evaluating that, that the Bible doesn't necessarily always speak of judging as bad. It actually tells Christians to judge in certain senses, certain cases, which we'll look at. And so here, Paul is addressing the bad judgment. If you'll turn with me to Luke, Or Matthew, excuse me, Matthew chapter 7. This is one of the, uh, I love this parable of Jesus. And I think this is the heart at what what Paul is is beginning to to hammer home with the readers. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is telling a parable. And he's looking at his disciples. And I believe if my memory is correct that he's in Jerusalem, but I, I could be wrong. The image is certainly that he's in Jerusalem near the temple. And he says, do not judge so that you will not be judged. I'm sorry, this is, I know exactly what this is. This is in Galilee. This is the Sermon on the Mount. 
See, my mind went somewhere else. I got ahead of myself. I was thinking Luke, which is going to come later. That's a great one. We're going to get there. <laughs> so on, on the Sermon of the Mount, overlooking the Sea of Galilee up on the hill, Jesus is there and he begins this great sermon. It starts in chapter 5, goes all the way through 7. And when he gets to this section, he says, Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. I think that's important. Because he's not necessarily, I don't think he's saying that judging is bad. He's saying how you judge, how you, how you go about making your judgments, that you can do it a right way or a wrong way, and how you do it is, is going to come back on you. Because if you're super judgmental with a, with a harsh legalistic heart, well, that's going to come back on you. And he says, why do you look at the speck that's in your brother's eye? And literally this word is, is like a, a, a tiny piece of sawdust. Like one little piece gets in the eye. He says, How, why do you look at the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log? And the, the log would be a, would be a uh, so I'm looking for Daniel for the word, like a big beam that's like that you, for a roof, like that you, like in the roof, there's a big beam. Do you know what it's called? A joist. A joist. That's the word I'm looking for. So a big old beam, like a building beam, he says, and there's humor there. And I almost picture Jesus out on the outside picking up a big old log on the ground, like walking around, like, how are you going up to your brother trying to get the speck out of his eye? It'd be like me holding an eight foot or 12 foot joist trying to get to, to Rick's eye to navigate. I'd take off his head and, it, and, and it's sort of humorous. He's like, you have this, this big old issue in your life, and yet you're criticizing, you're trying to judge this one little thing. Verse 4, how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye. You hypocrite, first take out the log of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. See, see the attitude? How you do it. He says, take that log out of your eye, then you'll be able to help your brother. He, he never says, well, you just kind of walk around happy with that log in your eye. Nobody tell him about that log in his eye. And when you do get it out, just leave him alone. Like, let's just be happy with one another. There's no sense to judge one another. So there's a, there's a bad sort of judging. Later in Luke, I think let's go to Luke. Luke chapter 18, if my memory's right. Let's see here. Luke 18, 11. So here they are. Jesus is telling a parable. He's talking about prayer. And in verse 10, he says, Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. These two guys are, are, are polarized. The, the Pharisee was a leader of the, of the Jewish people. He was uh, the spiritual leader. They would look up to him. He said what was sin and what was not sin. He told people how to come to God. That there was a tax collector. Everybody hated the tax collector. They, if you had a family member that was a tax collector, you could basically disown them. If a tax collector asked you a question, it was legally okay to lie to them. Like you, you don't, your testimony to them didn't matter because everybody hates the tax man. And, and they didn't like them. And so Jesus puts up this picture of the super duper religious good guy. And then you have the criminal that everybody can't stand and they avoid like the plague. And if you have one in your family, 
You're super embarrassed about it. The Pharisee stood up and was praying to himself. It's kind of interesting that who's he praying? He's praying to himself. (laughs) So he's speaking to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I think it was in the law that they only had to fast once a year. So this is a super adding to the law. Like I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. He's puffing himself up. He's such this great guy. He's telling himself all about it. He's doing it in a way that everybody can hear him. He's comparing himself to this this guy that was lower on the totem pole. He wasn't liked by anybody. And then Jesus talks about the tax collector, but the tax collector standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven. But he was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. This is a sad picture of uh, it, it would be equivalent to us in church today. We have us inside the building, but imagine that there's some drunk homeless guy just standing out on the curb right where you turn into the church. He doesn't want to come any closer. And he's out there pounding his chest, can't even look up to heaven and saying, God, be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. That's kind of sad. The hopelessness there. And Jesus says in verse 14, I tell you, um, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But he who humbles himself will be exalted. So Jesus sort of paints this picture of, of when, we, when, we, when we judge. Be careful of that log in your eyes. You're trying to help your brother. Be careful of religion that says, well, you, because you go to church, because you do all this stuff, that you get arrogance in your heart that says, I'm better than all of you. And that makes me a better person. And I think God should judge all of these other people. Not me. I'm a pretty good guy, but everybody else and the world's falling apart, but not in my life because I got religion. I've, I've, I read the Bible. I go to church. I do a wanna. I do whatever you like fill in the blank with all of the religious stuff that we like. And a lot of times Christians or those who identify with Christianity, but don't really get it so often don't judge me. The Bible says not to judge. Well, in a certain sense, that's true. But in another sense, within the body, we, they're judging sort of encouraged. In Corinthians, if you'll turn there, this is where I was supposed to go. In Corinthians chapter 5, the church in Corinth was a mess. They're, they're, Paul wrote Romans from Corinth. And in chapter 5 of Corinthians, we see that within, within the church... There's a gross sin happening. Paul writes, it is actually reported that there is immorality among you. And immorality of such a kind as does not exist, even exist among the Gentiles. That someone has his father's wife. You've become arrogant and have not mourned instead so that one who has done this deed would be removed from your midst. From my part. Though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him 
who is so committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I've decided to deliver one such as one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of our Lord Jesus. That's a pretty, just in, just in modern English, Paul says, I'm not there, but I hear about this guy who's sleeping with his father's wife. Whether it's his mom or his stepmom, we don't know. There's a lot of speculation, but it was vile. And Paul says, even the Gentiles, the barbarians, they won't even tolerate that. Yet in the First Baptist Church of Corinth, it's happening in your midst. And I'm not there. But I've decided it, and what I'm telling you to do as an apostle, that I have the Lord's blessing, that I want you to get them out of the church, let them go on their way, so give them over to Satan so that they'll die. The destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit might be saved. So this is like, this is kind of like security of salvation. You would think if anybody would lose their salvation, but apparently this person had placed their trust in Christ, Paul says, let them go out in the world, let God deal with them, let them be punished so that their spirit may be saved in the Lord of our, in, in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Later, if you, we follow this story up in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, I believe is where it's found. Paul says, okay, everybody, ease up on this guy. You challenged him with his sin. He's repented. He's, he's confessed his sin. He's ended whatever was going on. Allow him back into fellowship because discipline is for the aim of their relationship with God. Don't go on to where you destroy his spirit. And then I want to continue verse six. So where I'm really trying to get to is your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough and clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump just as it, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor the leaven of, the, of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. So here's this idea of judging. This previous letter that Paul wrote, it, it, it never made it to the Bible. I don't know if it was because he was so upset when he wrote the letter, like that God said, no, that's not doesn't make the cut. That wasn't really spirit led. That might have been a little more fleshly in your response to them. But he's already written them another letter and he told them to judge, to not associate with immoral people. And so they received this and they said, oh, if you have sin, I'm not going to associate with you. If you have sin, I don't want anything to do with you. And they basically so backed them in. To themselves into a corner where they only have us four and no more and we're going to associate with one another because we all are pretty good but paul says that's not what i meant i did not at all mean with the moral people of this world or with the covetous or swindlers or with idolaters for then you would have to go out of the world he says you're supposed to be out there salt in the world light and darkness God never caused, called the church to, to leave the world to isolate ourselves. He wants us to walk with him to be out in the darkness, to be out amongst those without Christ. He says, verse 11, but I actually, 
But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother. This isn't speaking literally of your flesh and blood. This is speaking of someone who professes Christ and you profess Christ. We're now brothers and sisters in Christ. And he said, what I'm speaking of is somebody who's a professing Christian. If he is an immoral person or covetous or idolater or reveler or drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what do we have to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? And so you can go back to Romans. So, so judging is, it's not so much a, a, a good or it, it's, it, it's how it's exercised that makes it good or bad. We make judgments all the time, every day. You're judging what I'm saying at this very moment. I'm judging and critiquing my own words. So Paul tells us, you know what? You're to judge within the church. Don't judge without out of the church. Within the church, how do we judge? We go back to the Sermon on the Mount. If you're in sin, and I'm not talking about stuff that's, that, that is preferences. I'm, that's just black and white sin. I have an obligation as a pastor. We have an obligation to one another who love the Lord. Nobody's saying that we're perfect. We take the log out of our own eyes best we can, or we are in relationship with one another. Say, I've got this log in my eye. I keep taking it out, and it keeps going back in. And I don't know how to deal with it. Have any of you been there? Can you help me? Can you pray for me? And so when we see somebody that's walking in sin, our aim is in love. We're not perfect. We love the Lord. What you're doing is against his word. God wants better for you. So let's pray for you. Let's, how can we help you to, to get on the right path? The judging that, that he's talking about here is the judging of that Pharisee in the temple. Like, look at me. I, I tithe twice a week or I mean fast twice, twice a week. I tithe of everything I have. I pray all the time. I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like that guy. This sort of pride and arrogance is the judgment that Paul's addressing. He knows his Jewish brothers. He's a Pharisee of the tribe of Benjamin. He is one of the most elite Jews of his day. He's addressing their arrogance as one of them. And he says, as you practice these same things, you judge them, but you're just as guilty. When I look at the teachings of Jesus, he makes the Old Testament law seem Easy. The Old Testament law is like, well, just don't have an affair with your wife. Jesus says, I tell you, if you look with lust upon a woman, you've had, you've committed adultery in your heart. You're condemned. He elevates the teaching of the law. And so as Paul says this stuff, as he gets to verse three, he says, but suppose this, oh man, did I get ahead of myself? Verse two, I'm sorry. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. He says, you know what? When God judges the world, back to chapter one, his judgment is right. We don't want fairness with God. We want mercy. We want grace. And he says, when God's judgment falls, it's right. God is not wrong. God is holy. He's perfect. He knows everybody's heart. He sees beyond the external. We only see the external. And so when he judges, he does it rightly so. And at this point, the Jew would agree with Paul's statement. And they still, there'd be this sort of 
but I'm a good person. I agree with that. I heard a story when I was in the SEAL teams. My friend, he's, he's passed away a, a few years ago. But I was a brand new guy, and he would tell stories about when he was at SEAL Team 6, at Dev Group, the big guys, and how, how, how their sense of humor is taken to a whole new level and sort of grooming us. He's like, yeah, one time the joke went too far, and I got my feelings like really hurt. He's like, but it was so funny, like years passed. They're on deployment, and they had all the new guys like lined up, and they say, okay, everybody here whose grandmother is still alive, please step forward. And all the guys like took a step forward that grandmother was still alive. And they look at him and they're like, not so fast. We just got a Red Cross message last night. Sorry, bud, your grandma died. And it's like, ah! <laughs> and I, I know, ah. But I kind of feel in verse 2, maybe my distorted brain, I kind of feel like Paul's setting them up. Like God judges rightly and they're all stepping forward. Yes, they did. And I made the line and he's like, but do you suppose this, O oh man, that when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Not so fast. Don't think you made the cut just because you are engrossed in religion, because you're a part of God's chosen race. God's chosen people probably is the better way to say that. That many Jews, probably even still today, well, God's promised our nation. We're good to go. We're not going to be held accountable. We're Jewish. Why would God judge us? We're good to go. It's like me when I was a kid. I was baptized into the Catholic Church. I had no relationship with Christ, but I was told that my baptism made me good to go with God. Don't worry about that. You're good. We baptized you as a kid. Talk about major confusion. And then he he asked that rhetorical question. Do you think that you are going to escape the judgment of God? Remember, we're leading towards Romans 3.23. That all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Not just the non-religious, but the religious are just as guilty. And I love verse 4. Highlight this one. Star it. This is important for us to understand. He says, or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience? Not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? He asks these two rhetorical questions. He's not expecting an answer from them. And Paul says, listen, how did you come to repentance? I believe that in this chapter 2, he's writing to believers. He says in Romans 1, 7, to the beloved of God in Rome. So there are many who receive this, who, who maybe they're judging from their religious background, but they have a relationship with Christ. They've come to believe in him as Savior. And Paul reminds him, he says, do you think lightly? Do you? Don't you remember that it wasn't the law that saved you? It was the love of God. It was his kindness. He lists three things. Kindness, tolerance, and patience. Not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. If that's how God dealt with us in coming to faith, why would we deal with those outside of faith any differently? Like so often the church, Christians have this reputation for being harsh, mean, insensitive unloving when it was this kindness of god his love that led us along the way that we would come why would i be any different and it's not always that we're sometimes when people are convicted they feel like that you're not loving and kind which is that's a whole other issue but it's god's love that won us over it's that he was so kind and so merciful to us that's our example
he goes on to say, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of revelation uh, and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each person according to his deeds. I like this, the storing up wrath. Most of us are told to save for the rainy day, invest in your IRA, invest in your 401k, do all of your savings so that you can store up, you know, resources so that when retirement comes, you'll be, you know, you'll be able to live off into your golden years and finish well. Paul sort of uses this, like your stubbornness, your unrepented heart, your self-righteousness, your arrogance, your pride, like with these things. You're, you've got this little bank account with God. You're just storing up his wrath. That if you enter into glory with this attitude, his wrath is going to come upon you hard. He says that, that pride God opposes. We see this picture of this man praying in Luke 18. That Jesus says, this guy is not what we want to see. We want to see the tax collector. This attitude of this humble heart. That this person that looks inwardly at their own sin and and doesn't compare themselves with others, but they compare themselves against God's righteousness. And he says, to those who preserve in doing good, seek glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation, there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil of the jew first and also of the greek but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good to the jew first and also to the greek now on this one i want to make sure i get back to my notes here in this section there's sort of i think the easiest way to sort of this sort of a difficult section it's, it, it's easy to kind of take it out of context. Like, is he saying that, like, well, if you do good and you're doing good works, then, then you earn your salvation that way? Because it, it kind of at simple glance, if we isolate ourselves in this text, it, Paul seems to be making the case that if you're bad, then bad stuff happens to you in the grand scheme of things. And if you're good and you obey the law, then it looks like good stuff happens to you regardless if you're Jew or Greek. And I, I don't think that's what he's saying. He's, he's getting to the point that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We ultimately know from the grand scheme of things, he's, he's not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God. We know that it's by grace. And what I think he's leading to is getting down to verse two. He's, he's sort of setting them up in my mind in just sort of simple terms, that there's these two groupings and it'd be very easy to think okay i'm on the good side i'm on the good team we always think that we're on the good team that we're obeying the law we love god we're doing the right things but then in verse 12 through 16 paul introduces a new word to us the law in capital letters shows up 10 times where he starts presenting the law And ultimately, his case is that all have fallen short of the glory of God. See, in verse 12, we see the word sinned twice. After saying that there's no partiality with God, that God's judgment, it doesn't matter. It comes down, it misses nothing. As a SEAL instructor, as a SEAL, people always ask me, 
you know, what's harder? Like, what, what's the secret? Or, or what things tend to weed people out more? And one thing I always say, and I always joke because I went through a winter hell week class. My hell week was November 27th to December 2nd. The hardest hell week that ever happened in the SEAL teams. That's what every guy says. But as an instructor, the winter has such a hot, like, there's so many more people wash out. And the reason I believe it is, is because you can't hide in the cold. So in the summer class, there, there's so many people, and you can cheat, and you can get away with stuff. There, you, like, as we're making them do push-ups or playing our games, certain people stand out to us, but there's always somebody that's not necessarily making the cut the way it's supposed to be, but I can't see it. And there's only so many of us. We don't have an instructor on every single person. Now, the wintertime, what we do is we say, all right, gentlemen, link arms, where you go arm in arm like this, forward march, make them forward march out into the ocean until they're about waist deep, and you say, okay, on your backs. Everybody lays down in the ocean to where only their mouths are above the water, every single one of them. There is, there is no hiding from the cold of the Pacific Ocean. Nobody can get away. It only takes one instructor to monitor all of that because if they get out of the water, it's easy to see. There's no partiality with the cold. Everybody suffers the same. And I think what Paul's getting at is that, listen, you amongst people, you might be able to cheat and get away with stuff according to your own eyes. That when you're very religious and you're going through all of the motions of religion, when you, care, when you compare yourself to those not doing religious things, you seem pretty good. But where this passage is going in verse 16, we're going to see that God's going to judge the secret of the hearts of all men. And there's no escape. I don't care how religious you are or how good you are. This passage is pretty it's discouraging. Like, I, like as I'm studying this, it's like, man, I sure like I'm starting to feel helpless here. He goes on to say, like he's speaking of the law, who the Jewish person would rely upon the law. That Paul, when he converted, he said, according to the law, he was blameless. That you could have talked to Paul before he became a Christian, and he would have looked you in the eye and said, I am without sin. Concerning the law, I am blameless. Concerning zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. I was God's good student. But now he says sin twice. He says, for all who have sinned without the law, chapter one, they are without the law. They are not within Judaism. They don't have uh, the, the Old Testament guiding them and instructing them in life. It says, for all have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. He goes on to say, for it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves. And so as he speaks of this law, I'm reminded of what is the purpose of the law? So it almost makes you think that those without the law, they're going to die without the law. But then he kind of goes, well, even those without the law, they, it's like they have the law of God written on their hearts. That, that, that there are certain universal truths wherever you go around the world that certain things are wrong, like murdering's wrong. And there's certain things that just intrinsically are, we say they're wrong. 
and not as a Christian, but you start asking an evolutionist, a scientist, this, the, 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 the one that believes in just the survival of the fittest. And this was a very interesting. Two weeks ago, I went to this creation seminar that I didn't want to go to that I was very open about. And my dear friend accepted the Lord. So praise the Lord. So thank you for your prayers. And um, but this guy who I want to have come speak at the church, it's going to be a, it's going to be a it's a it's a long shot. <laughs> I want to have an astrophysicist come share at the church. He was so simple and made so much sense. And he was like, I don't understand how, a, how an evolutionist can say certain things are wrong because where's their standard? The standard is that it's written in their heart because God put it there, not because of their logic, because their logic should tell you that, well, if you go around and kill a bunch of people, well, the people you killed, they're, the, they're not the survival of the fittest. They're not the fit. I'm the fit because I'm able to take care of them. When people get cancer, to just let them go. That's, that's the screening process. So there's a bunch of contradictions. And I got on a tangent here. Speaking of sinning without the law, Paul writes, this is where I got. He says that the law is written on their hearts, even though they didn't have the law. Then he says that those under the law will be judged by the law. And the problem is, is if you took the, the Saul of Tarsus, he would say, well, I'm good to go. I'll pass that standard. But he's the one who's writing. And ultimately, if you follow to the mini book of Romans over in Galatians, which is Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, he explains a lot. It's believed that Galatians was probably one of Paul's earliest writings. There's some discussion on that, but I kind of think it is. And so as Paul writes Galatians, Part of his problem is he'd gone to this region. He'd shared the gospel. People had come to believe in Christ as as Savior. (laughs) Then in Paul's wake as he'd left, there were a group of people called the Judaizers who would follow in his wake and they would take the gospel and they would say, it's good that you believed in Christ and all, but you have to put yourself under the Mosaic law. If you're uncircumcised, you need to be circumcised. You need to do all of this stuff if you want to be good with God. And so Paul starts Galatians. This is one of his fieriest letters. He starts with just great passion and confronting the air of their ways. And in chapter 3, verse 23, he writes concerning the law. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith, which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor. Some of your translations might read schoolmaster or teacher. This idea that the law is that which instructs us, which leads us. And where does the law lead us? The tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. And so the idea... Going back to Romans, you can go back to Romans chapter 2. When Paul speaks of the law, he says, you try to live by the law and you're going to be judged by the law. But the reality is, is the one who's using the law to judge you is God who is holy and without sin. We're able to kind of manipulate the law, but the law rightly applied 
will totally discourage you and show you how sinful you are. It's like a net that basically entraps your sin and forces it to bubble up. There are certain laws that I just don't think about much. But in Singapore, when I went there the two times, there's two laws in particular that seem like not a big deal. You're not allowed to chew gum and you're not allowed to spit. I don't have a problem. I don't think I'm a big spitter even. Like I don't spit a lot. Like I don't, I got a dry mouth or something. I don't know. I just don't spit. It was never a hobby I picked up. Chewing gum I like on occasion, but I can go long stretches without chewing gum. But when I got to Singapore, guess what I wanted to do desperately? And desperately, all I wanted to do is chew gum and spit. And so the first time I didn't have it, I had spit, but I didn't really, I wasn't ornery enough the first time. The second time I was like, there's got to be gum in this country somewhere. So the second time I came back, I made sure that I had gum and I chewed gum and I spit a bunch of times in, in Singapore. And all that law did was like, show me how bad I, like, why did I have to chew gum and spit? I laugh at the 22-year-old gunner that just had to do it to show them that if I wanted to chew gum and spit, I could. And I did. And there was no punishment, but God may hold me accountable, but now I'm in Christ. And so he's pointing to the law, the need for Christ. Where we'll get, this whole word in verse 13 comes up, justified. To be just before God. This is a great theological term that Paul is going to deal with in Romans. His point here in this section is to show the Jewish people or those clinging to religion that your religion, your law, the religious rules, that will not save you. The only reason that those are there is to show you your sin and to show you your utter depravity. They're like, The bumpers when you're bowling, all those things do is show you how bad of a bowler you are. That (laughs) they're safety guards to show you not to save you. If we turn over to Romans chapter 5, verse 1, as he begins this section, Romans chapter 4, if Romans 3.23 says sort of mile markers, Romans 3.23, all have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. He makes his mark that we've all sinned. We're all in trouble. We are all in dire need. And then in chapter 4, he begins to show Abraham, the great father of the Jewish people, who who they held to, to to support their case in the law. He's going to show that even Abraham, his righteousness was credited to him by faith. He came before the law. And it was of faith. It's always been of faith. The Old Testament is the same God. Same gracious, merciful, loving God. Always wanted us. To come to him through faith. In the Old Testament, it was faith in the coming Messiah. We look back to the Messiah who's come. And in Romans chapter 4, it's this great Jewish passage of showing that even Abraham was a man of faith. And that his righteousness came to him through faith. Then when he gets to chapter 4, we see this word justified again. And he says, therefore, having been justified by faith. We have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained our introduction, or you could translate that word access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exalt in hope of the glory of God. This is where he's going. You can go back to Romans chapter two, verse wherever that was, 
13, I think, justified. So, so he's sort of giving this hint of the whole idea of justification. But in this case, he's showing us that if you think you're going to get justified, that you're going to receive salvation through good works, you're going down a dead-end road. And ultimately, he's going to help all of us get on the track. He goes on to say, verse 15, they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience, speaking still of those apart from the law, bearing witness in their thoughts, alternately accusing or else defending them. So he's showing that the working of the, the conscience that God gives. We don't have time to explore this. We've talked about it in the past. But, but the idea of conscience, that it's sort of this, this thing that God can use. You can sear a conscience, which we'll see later. A conscience isn't necessarily reliable. But as we study the word and as God's word goes into us and as we allow our conscience to be guide, guided by the spirit, the conscience can be something that really helps us along the way. Sometimes it can hold us back because it's convicting, of, uh, convicting us of stuff that isn't in line with scripture. Okay. Verse 16 is where we're heading. So he goes through this religious person that is shaking their head saying, yes, they deserve death. Paul shows them, listen, you've judged. God's going to use that judgment against you. You'll see that your, your, your morality, your religiousness, it's all falling, sh- falling short. And he says, on that day, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. He paints a bleak picture. The secrets of men, that thing deep within you that nobody knows about, God knows about. If you even had one bad thought in your whole life, that puts you in the dirty water section, not the clean water. Only God is pure and holy. We're contaminated by sin. And on that day, we're told that we're going to be judged of that God will judge the secrets of men through Christ. He wants us to feel desperately hopeless in our own works. He's leading towards the clinging of Christ. We're going to take communion. And thinking about this, uh, co- communion ties in so beautifully. Um, verse 4, as we take communion... We need to keep at the forefront of our brains. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? I really don't feel that our church is judgmental. I really do believe that this is a loving place. I've, I hear it all the time from people who visit, who come. Um, we've had... People who, who, who have visited that maybe don't fit within the, the Christian culture of things, who are not believers, um, and, and they have commented on how loving this place is. And so I, I, this is not at all like a beating us message. I, I hope it's not. <laughs> but the reality is, is if we are clinging to religion, if we're thinking that because we come to church, because we give money, because we do these things, that that is what makes God pleased with us, we're in trouble. It's the kindness of God that led us to repentance. And as we take communion, going to verse 8, my Catholicism shapes a lot of times when it comes to communion. But the, 
that Jesus died on the cross once. This is, this is a remembrance. We're reflecting on what happened. Jesus isn't continually dying on the cross over and over again. When he died on the cross, it was totally and completely sufficient to pay for our sins. And in chapter 8, verse 1, I love this verse. And once we get through the we're all in trouble section of Romans, Romans is awesome. Because once we get the bad news, man, the good news is awesome. It's wonderful. I mean, if we had one verse to memorize and to cling on to for the rest of our life, Romans 8, verse 1 says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Isn't that awesome? And so communion, when we come to take communion, it's our reflecting upon what Christ did for us. We didn't do anything to earn salvation. We are in so much trouble apart from Christ. We can't do anything to save ourselves. And so when we take communion, if 1 Corinthians chapter 11, if you want to turn there, you can, or I'm just going to kind of talk about it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 33, Paul tells this church in Corinth that was a mess. He explains communion to them. They had been coming to communion and participating in communion, getting drunk. They were using communion, uh, the wine in the communion, to, to instead of reflect on Christ, but to get drunk with it, to have big parties with. And it was detestable in the sight of the Lord. And he says that people were taking communion incorrectly in such a way that ultimately god took them from this world that some of them died that they were coming to communion without the proper reference reverence and so in verses 27 through 33 paul basically says communion is a time for you to to reflect to confess to say lord i'm standing in grace i've got this struggle whatever it is i mean you could put that blanket in each of us have all kinds of stuff that God's working on us, that we've fallen short on. And it's a time for us to confess, to ask God to help us, to, to lead us along the way. I do want to say the question comes up, and I, I just assume that most people come from, from, a, from a background that communion is, is a loving, is an encouraging time for us to, be, to reflect on our hope. But unfortunately, there are plenty of churches that have stuff that, that are closed communion. That if you're not one of us, you're not allowed to participate. If you have this sin in your background, it could have been from 40 years ago, you're not welcome to participate. And so I want to remind us, who, who's communion for? First, it's for the Christian. What is a Christian? A Christian is somebody who's heard the gospel, that Jesus died according to the scriptures for your sins, that he was buried. On the third day, he rose according to the scriptures. That's the gospel. And that believing in him, we have life. When you hear the gospel, according to Ephesians 1.13, you've heard it. Then you believe upon him for salvation. You trust him with your life. At that moment, you become a Christian. I want to remind us, it didn't say that when you believe upon him, you become perfect. <laughs> We're little Christian. We're forgiven of our sin. We're sanctified. We are in, when we die, we'll be perfectly sanctified. In this time, we are, we're, while we're positionally sanctified, meaning that in God's eyes, he sees Christ's righteousness in us. 
there's still this process of sanctification where God is, is making us more like him day by day. And so whatever your sin is, it, it, the, the idea for the first part is that you confess, that you ask the Lord for help. So if you've trusted in Christ, you're brothers and sisters in Christ, and you're welcome to take communion at this church with us. It's nice to take communion with brothers and sisters around the world. It's one of the sweetest things to participate in this intimate relationship. In verses 23 through 24, we have little juice and little crackers up here. And what they are is they're, they're symbolic. Like my wedding ring is symbolic of the day that I got married. I, I never can take it off when I'm preaching because my fingers, I think, are swollen or something. But if I was to take off my wedding ring, does that mean I'm unmarried? Before I got married, I had this in my possession for like three weeks. And I remember, you know, and this is, you know, it's, it's embarrassing. But, you know, you're like, like oh, right, I'm going to get married in a couple weeks. I had the wedding ring. I'd like slip it on. But it didn't make me married. But I'm like, oh, I'll have to get used to this piece of jewelry. And I wasn't a big jewelry guy. I remember popping it on and off like before the wedding day going, man, I'm going to be walking around like a married guy with this thing on my finger. But before I was married, it was nothing. It was just putting on this little gold ring. It's just a symbol. Taking a communion doesn't make you a Christian. Being baptized doesn't make you a Christian. These are all symbols. And so what is this symbolic of? Well, the broken cracker, it's, it's to symbolize Jesus dying on the cross. Second Corinthians chapter 5, at the very end there, verse 17, it says, He who knew no sin, that's Jesus, he became sin, that the world's sin was placed upon him on the cross. That the righteousness of God might become our own righteousness. That through faith, we're declared righteous has nothing to do with what we did it has everything to do with what he did and we need him desperately romans chapter 5 verse 1 that we just read that you're justified by faith and then it goes on to say let us keep standing in this grace which which always seems weird to me we view grace as a as a commodity of receiving something that we don't deserve but the bible also speaks of grace as 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 something you stand in as a lifestyle that we're not only saved by grace, but that we live in grace and how we deal with others should be gracious and loving and kind because we receive this ultimate grace from God, the father. And then verse 26, the last part of communion is, is it says for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. God is a God of 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 going and 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 reaching out that he's commissioned the body of believers his church to be his ambassadors so that as we take communion we're to look inward to reflect in our own hearts to ask god to continue to do the work to confess sin as we take the the bread and the juice we're reminded that it's only because of his death on the cross that we have peace with god the, the juice symbolizes the new covenant. And as we take this, we're reminded that this is the message that we're supposed to share because he's coming back. And when he comes back, there'll be no more communion because when he comes back, we're going to be with him forever. We'll be in his presence. There'll be no need to do communion. And so as we take communion, often before I take communion, during that reflection, to ask the Lord to show you a person in your life that doesn't know jesus the big guy that's been on my heart he just accepted the lord so now i gotta like find a new target you know 
And, uh, but certainly there's somebody that's in your life that doesn't know Jesus that God wants you or he's going to use you to share the gospel with them. So, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. Lord, as we look at these first three chapters of Romans, they paint a bleak picture. But, Lord, we're thankful that it's not the end of the story. We're thankful that our relationship with you, Lord, is not contingent upon our own good works, our being a moral person, being good. For we know that in your standard, we all miss the mark. Father, we pray that you would just continue doing that work in our hearts, Lord. um, That we would become more like you. Father, help us to truly understand and embrace the reality that our repentance, our coming to faith, our relationship with you was initiated through your kindness, through your patience with us. And so, Lord, we pray that those those characteristics, Lord, would um, transcend our lives. We thank you that in Christ there's no condemnation. Father, we pray that as we get ready to take communion, that you would show us areas in our life, Lord, that we're struggling with. Um, we all have sin, and it's all a big deal to you. We're thankful that our Our sin does not uh, condemn us in Christ, but you convict us, Lord, and and it hinders our relationship with you. So, Lord, we desire close uh, koinonia-type fellowship with you. And so, Lord, we pray that you would show us, Lord, any sin that's uh, creating a, a barrier in our relationship with you. Father, we thank you that you are a forgiving God, that you restore us, that you wash us white as snow. And Lord, as we take this communion, as we reflect on the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, our Lord, we pray that you would show us family members, friends, co-workers, uh, people in our lives, Lord, that don't know you. It's hard to engage people with the gospel. And so, Lord, we pray that um, you would use us, Lord. Um, when the opportunities present itself, Lord, help us not to shy away in fear, trembling, Lord, but that we would speak a word that our lives would be an example of your um, grace. We do love you, Lord, and we ask this in Christ's good name. Amen.